0: This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much, Kodo. And I want to wish everyone a happy solstice. Uh, it's a joy and honor to be with you all, and even if we still can't be together in person, given the circumstances of the pandemic. Um, I'm deeply grateful that we have the technology to make it possible for us to be together, at least virtually. And that because of this technology, even a a wider array of people from all over the world are able to join in our exploration of the Dharma together. So whenever I look at the screen of Zoom, I often think I see a, a virtual Buddha field before me. So welcome again. So last Sunday, I gave the Dharma talk for the Green Gulch Farm Zen Center Song guide. And I want to begin today the same way I did then, by saying that my intention is to be with you in humility. And I wanted to name that as someone who is limited on the relative level by being a particular body, one that is arising out of any number of intersectionalities, including that of male, queer, and white-racialized. And as such, my views and experiences are limited. And therefore, no matter how much intention I have to do good and avoid harm, the limitations of my experience are going to engender ignorance. And if, as a result, my words may cause harm, and if they do, I want to ask for both your forgiveness as well as your feedback. That is, if you're interested in, in offering that. And I also want to offer gratitude for the many, many conditions that enable me to be here in this way. Because according to the Dharma and the ultimate view, I don't come here as an individual. It's not something I do in my own. The entirety of existence, including all of you, supports me to be here. And therefore, I offer deep bows to the totality of being. And in a related vein, I want to also take a moment to acknowledge and express gratitude to our innumerable ancestors, however we may identify and name them, including those of of land, flesh and blood, labor, culture, the spirituality of religion, of vision, and so forth. I invite you to join me in honoring and appreciating all those who came before us and made it possible for us to be here today in the ways we are here. So commemorating and honoring their hearts and minds and bodies, their joys and sorrows, their accomplishments and failures, their strengths and weaknesses their character and vision, their struggles and losses and griefs. All of these are woven into the tapestry that makes for this world and the present moment. And let us not forget, in everything that we do today, that we ourselves are ancestors for those who will come after us. Can we live in such a way that we constantly have their happiness and welfare and liberation in mind? Can we live in such a way as to do them proud? I'm wondering if any of you are familiar with the word sankofa. Zankofra is a word in the Twi language of Ghana that translates to go back and get it. Meaning to return and fetch something. And there's a particular symbol that's often associated with the word, which is that of a a stylized kind of heart-shaped bird. With its head turns backwards while its feet face forward. And in its mouth it's carrying a precious egg. And this symbol represents the teaching that we need to look back in order to go forward. We need to go back and understand our history in order to know who we are and fully be ourselves in the present. A. Dogen, the founder of our particular school of Zen, tells us that all moments, past, present, and future, flow into this moment. And Thich Nhat Hanh teaches that the present moment contains the past and that we can heal the past by being mindful of the present. So I imagine that many of you know, as many of you know, yesterday, June 19th, marked a day of celebration known as Juneteenth. And Juneteenth is a day in which we as a nation took a significant step forward, toward the potentiality of freedom and collective liberation. So it's a profound day of celebration, even though many of us, and I'm speaking uh, of those of us in particular who are white racialized in this country, weren't made aware of it in the education or the social and cultural circles in which we grew up in. I certainly wasn't. The 150 year old holiday is also known as Freedom Day or, or Jubilee Day and it recognizes when the United States ended its historic practice of slavery, legally and in the real world. And in this sense, Juneteenth is a day for commemorating the freedom of all people living in the United States. Although the Emancipation Proclamation signed by President Lincoln on September 22, 1862, freed the slaves in the South, For technical reasons, it couldn't actually be enforced in many places until the end of the Civil War in 1865. So Juneteenth marks the historical moment when Union soldiers marched into Galveston, Texas, and announced the end of slavery. Almost two and a half years after the original proclamation was signed. I read that over 200,000 people had continued to be enslaved during that period of time. So given this, we could say that Juneteenth is America's true interdependence day. And in many ways, more fully realizes the first one. So even though the U.S. declared independence from England in July of 1776, the freedom claim was only a partial freedom, because it wasn't a freedom that was claimed for people for, because it was a freedom that was claimed for people of European descent, for white people mostly. And with the beginning of freedom for white people, the U.S. simultaneously instituted slavery for people of African descent in the U.S. The unsettling thing to realize is that. The day this country celebrates independence is also the day the country sanctioned slavery for a big part of the population. So we might ask, what kind of freedom is that? And furthermore, the declaration stated that all men are created equal. But this all men was actually qualified to mean all white men, no men of African descent or other men of non-European descent, including Native Americans. And it was also largely no mention of women who had to wait until the 1920s to get the right to vote. So this became a paradox, a moral or ethical quandary. actually, that from the very beginning of our country, country, we had to find a justification or a reason why some people were not deserving of freedom. In many ways Juneteenth represents the good and the bad in what makes the United States the country it is. It's symbolic of a liberation but one that was delayed to consistent opposition resistance to equality that is rooted in white supremacy. Those last American slaves were declared free months after they had actually been freed and still freedom wasn't granted overnight. Some slave owners went so far as to withhold this information from the slaves until after harvest season, delaying freedom even further. And then a whole series of black codes were put into place to limit the freedoms that the formerly enslaved. Precursors to Jim Crow segregation laws, black codes were strict local and state laws throughout the South and which served as legal ways to put the newly minted black citizens into indentured servitude. Taking voting rights away to control where they lived and how they traveled and, and to seize children even for labor purposes. Even now the idea of delayed freedom resonates for many people, especially those who are still impacted in many ways by institutionalized systems of oppression. So we should recognize that from the original Juneteenth, 155 years ago, to 2020's Juneteenth, Black people have endured a continuous fight for equality and a different kind of freedom, a liberation that is truly on par with what every individual in this country should be granted. Well, Juneteenth is seen by many as an African-American celebration It's really about our collective freedom and the freedom that comes with acknowledging and healing our past. This uh, month of June also marks another important celebration of civil rights and freedom, and that is a pride. And right now at uh, City Center Beginner Mind Temple, we have both the Black Lives Banner hanging out front between two of the pillars of our front steps, as well as uh, a pride flag hanging from the banister. So it's quite wonderful to see both these expressions of uh, celebrated liberation. The actual, uh, the annual pride celebration commemorates the rebellion of LGBTQ patrons of the Stonewall Inn in New York's Greenwich Village in response to a routine police raid on June 27th, 1969. So what we now know as the annual Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Pride Celebration was born in a key moment of resistance to ongoing oppression by police. And this year marks the 50th anniversary of Pride because their first celebration was a year after, 1970. Although, um, due to the pandemic, there won't be the usual parade and the other festivities that are held at this time. And even though there have been lots of strides in gay rights since 1969, including uh, same-sex marriage now being legal in all 50 states as of five years ago, the fact is that the basic rights of the LGBTQ community continue to be under attack as we saw with the, the recent legal challenges to the landmark civil rights law that protects LGBTQ people from discrimination in employment. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court's verdict money on Monday upheld our rights, but for every win. There seems to be a loss. Just last week, the current administration removed health care protections for transgender people. And then there were the recent murders of two Black trans women. Two more names added to a long list of people killed because of their race, their sexual orientation, or their gender identity. Killed because of difference. So both Juneteenth and Pride rose out of historical circumstances in which large-scale attempts made to overhaul or dismantle social political systems that perpetuated discrimination and supremacy were only partially realized, leaving an an incomplete or unequal freedom for a large segment of the population rather than an all-out collective liberation. And we have seen this dynamic often repeated throughout history, where efforts to establish a certain measure of freedom for some hasn't always been equally applied to all when it came to how the terms of freedom were enacted. The Women's Rights Movement is of course another prominent example of how certain rights to freedom and opportunity were unjustifiably either withheld or inequitably applied. And while I would like to say that the history of Buddhism was free of such inequality and limits on freedom, it's sadly not the case. Now, Shakyamuni Buddha can be seen in many ways as a social revolutionary for going against the stream, as it said and resisting many of the deeply entrenched social and spiritual systems of his time, including those of an extremely rigid caste system that determined people's status and access to opportunities and resources. But even after his enlightenment, the Buddha was not totally immune to having some of his decisions compromised by certain forms of systemic discrimination that were prevalent in his time, and in his case, patriarchy. And we see this play out in the efforts by Mahapajapati, the Buddha's aunt and foster mother, to establish the first order of Buddhist nuns. So the story goes that when Buddha's father, King Suddhodana, died, Queen Pajapati Katami, she was then in her 70s, asked her nephew to form an order of nuns so that women too could be ordained and devote themselves to Buddhism and develop to their fullest capacity spiritually. And the Buddha refused. So she asked again, and he said no. Gautami tried a third time and still her nephew the man she had raised as her own son, disagreed despite her entreaties. And he apparently gave no reason for his refusal. Of course, Katami was crushed, but she would not give up. She gathered 500 women who equally wanted to devote themselves to a spiritual path, to entreat the Buddha to change his mind to their cause. So they shaved their head and donned yellow robes, just like a monk. And then together walked more than a hundred miles, it said, to the next town where the Buddha had gone to teach. And when they got to the next town, to where the Buddha was teaching, they were greeted by the monk Ananda, one of the Buddha's principal disciples and his cousin. And they explained why they were there when he asked. Sympathetic to their cause, Ananda offered to speak to the Buddha on their behalf. But he too got the same answer, no. So Ananda asked again and again and was repeatedly refused, just as Gautami had been. Finally, he asked the Buddha whether a woman could ever be enlightened and attain the bliss of an arhat. So he changed the strategy, could a woman be enlightened? And the Buddha said she could. So Ananda queried, well then, why can't a woman be a nun? And with this question, he changed the Buddha's mind. Shakyamuni assented and an order of nuns was created. However, it should be noted that there were eight additional conditions. These conditions are called the eight Garudamas or heavy rules that the nuns had to follow and which were above and beyond the monastic rule, the vinya, uh, applied to male monks and which were supposedly added to allow more acceptance of a monastic order for women during the Buddhist time. Now, While some say this was was a matter of Shakyamuni Buddha practicing upaya or skillful means, the historical impact of it was that female practitioners of the Dharma have for millennia, often been treated as second-class citizens in their own spiritual traditions and communities. So I've, um, I've offered three examples of historical circumstances in which the freedom and rights given to one particular segment of the population, often a representative majority in some way, were initially and unfairly denied to another particular segment of the population, often statistically a minority. And then when the withheld freedoms and rights were later granted, They were often done so only partially or with restrictions. And I share these in part because they serve in my mind to underscore the truth that there can be no personal liberation without collective liberation. Given this, we might ask ourselves: what is the value and integrity of a freedom that comes at the price? Of the denial of freedom for others. How can we ignore or turn a blind eye to the way in which our well being and prosperity might be based in the degradation and dehumanization of others, including through violent means such as slavery, murder, rape, and theft? Particularly if we consider ourselves practitioners of the Buddha Dharma which has as one of its core teachings the undeniable interconnectedness or interdependency of all being. As Suzuki Roshi Roshi said, interdependence means we should not ignore anything, and we should understand the relationship between each one of us, including with yourself. And he also said that to have sincere practice means to have sincere concern with people. So our practice is actually based on our humanity. I would add that the essential nature of humanity is freedom and that loving awareness is itself liberation. as uh, uh, Reverend uh, Angel, Keita William Williams, whose uh, identifies identities include that of being a Black queer woman and Zen priest, wrote an article for Tricycle magazine a couple of years ago, and it was titled, Your Liberation is on the Line. And she starts off her article with the following. I think we are finally at a place where we can accept the truth that no one escapes from oppression, not one of us. Everyone is deeply wounded. It's true, some people seem to be in position of what we call privilege, but we have to rethink that word. We get stuck on this notion of white privilege or dominant privilege, as if the marginalized people want what the people with privilege have. But I want no part of it. I want no part of any illness that renders people unable to see the beauty of all of our differences the beauty of my own mixed-raceness blackness queerness all the things I am I want no part of an illness that renders me unable to connect to love that is not a privilege So we have to begin by recognizing that the construct of white supremacy is an illness. I don't wish it on anyone, not on myself and not on you. But we've all been told a lie. And our work, particularly for those of us who say we identify with this path of liberation, is to free ourselves of that lie. To get in there and observe that that construct and the ways in which it limits us from our full potential. This disease keeps us from fully knowing each other, from seeing each other. Every single one of us must be, by way of our commitment to liberation, committed to being the cure. No one has ever touched liberation. No one who has ever touched liberation could possibly want anything other than the liberation for everyone. So we are being asked to fully commit to our own path of liberation and to do so for the benefit of all. The Buddha's vision was essentially one of collective liberation, even though a lot of the emphasis in early Buddhist teachings was on personal practice and salvation. From a, a Mahayana perspective, which such as Zen, the tradition of where I'm in, uh, is an expression of. From a Mahayana's perspective, however, personal practice is at the service of collective liberation. And while the early Theravada tradition of Buddhism, which tends to focus on the stages that the Buddha describes in his personal enlightenment process, focusing on his personal path of liberation, in the Mahayana and Zen traditions, we tend to focus on the Buddha's initial statement upon awakening beneath the Bodhi tree. He said, I and all sentient beings together attain enlightenment. I and all sentient beings together attain enlightenment. And this together is the root of the Bodhisattva aspiration to forego nirvana and remain in the world of samsara as long as any being remains who is suffering. Toni Morrison said in a commencement address at Bernard College, the function of freedom is to free someone else. So what do celebrations of freedom such as Juneteenth and Pride have to tell us about our collective liberation? And the deeper question may be, what is liberation? What do we really mean by freedom? What is real freedom for anyone at all? And how is it that the function of freedom is only realized in the actualization of someone else becoming free due to our efforts? It's my experience that through Buddhist practice, we discover true freedom in our own hearts and minds. And this happens by virtue of first coming to recognize the ways in which we are suffering. As the second noble truth points out, we suffer because we're caught in a grip or in the chains of some kind of self-oriented, you could say compulsion, some kind of craving, some kind of desire, aversion, or resistance. And when driven by a compulsive desire, we can't really operate as a free agent because fear and reactivity has the upper hand. So we end up believing and doing and saying things that aren't really for our well-being, that causes dis-ease, distress, anxiety, and, and other forms of suffering. We can say that the function of Buddhist practice is to uproot the ways in which we cling, hold, resist, and so forth so that we can see it clearly and release it, to really release it, to really set it free so we can be free? How is it that each of us is enslaved by the diseases of greed, hate, and delusion, and self-conceit? The conceit of the separate eye. And how might we be released from these illnesses? Now, the the operating word in Buddhism is release, not relief. We're just using Buddhism for relief, for some kind of comfort or stress relief, and we might continue to perpetuate all kinds of the ways that we are actually caught in an oppressive system, either psychologically or externally, of clinging, holding, and exploiting just to make ourselves comfortable. You have to be careful of the tendency to use the Dharma to maintain comfort, including that in the form of unearned privilege. Practice isn't about making ourselves comfortable or to feel good. It's meant to push our edges until we become so free of self-clinging that we are unconditionally liberated and unbounded. In his um, book Towards Collective Liberation, Anti-Racist Organizing Feminist Praxis and Movement Building Strategy, Uh, Chris Krass writes that, if systems of domination are interconnected, then systems of liberation are also interconnected. If systems of liberation are interconnected, then we must help white people, men and middle and upper class people, create and win these systems and go through a transformative process of change while working. Or a systemic change. While personal transformation has always been a part of anti-oppression politics, inter- interconnected liberation brings with it a vision that creates more space for possibilities of who we are becoming, as opposed to just knowing what and how we do not want to be. So, if we're working within a vision of collective liberation, then those of us who are white will work to end racism not for or on behalf of the interests of people of color, but because our lives and humanity depend on the eradication of racism as well. And one way to move through any guilt or shame that those of us who are white ritualized might feel in the process is to get clear on what we have to lose if white supremacy and white privilege continues. And what we have to gain by choosing the side of justice and humanity and locating ourselves alongside the people of the world struggling for liberation. My uh, teacher, Tia Strozo, told me that one of her teachers, Katagiri Roshi, once said, in the absolute, we are completely forgiven. And in the relative, we are completely responsible. People who are racialized as of color can't be expected to coddle those who are harmed, who have harmed them, meaning white folks. And we who are white can't place a responsibility for change on those who have been har- hurt by us. We who are white need to do the work of understanding the collective karma that comes with 400 years of the centering of whiteness and of our honor and privilege and the ways we have harmed others because of it, whether or not intentionally. We need to study the causes and conditions that that have given rise to systemic white supremacy. Acknowledge our errors and the pain they have caused. Apologize, ask for forgiveness, and then take deliberate steps and actions for true reconciliation and resolution, which includes a commitment not to engage in the harmful behavior again. we're being requested at this time of amplifying the measures that Black Lives Matter, the truth that Black Lives Matter, and to more clearly recognize the ongoing systemic violence against Black and brown bodies. To once again look more deeply into how it may be that we have participated in systems of domination, harm, and oppression, even if in a majority of instances, unintentionally and unknowingly. Ignorance ignorance doesn't absolve us of responsibility. Yesterday, a number of residents of Beginner's Mind Temple gathered in the afternoon on Zoom to commemorate Juneteenth Day. And our director, Michael, and his assistant, Fatima, created a, a slide presentation with music by Thelonious Monk during which students took turns reading the Emancipation Proclamation. And then a number of folks shared various passages and reflections for the occasion. And I was uh, particularly struck by the personal statement shared by one of our senior students, Kristen Diggs, who identifies as a Black woman of mixed race. And I asked her if uh, I could share this with you all. And she said yes. And she wrote, I feel that. Without the kind of detailed knowledge that was presented to us today, detailed knowledge of our shared collective national history, without detailed knowledge of our shared collective global history, we cannot treat people properly. We cannot treat people properly. We cannot treat properly the people who walk through the doors of San Francisco Zen Center to join our lectures on interdependence, wisdom, compassion, non-separation, and living for the benefit of all beings, while being terribly ignorant of or indifferent to our history. We must know the kind of history that people and things have. And we must understand the relationship between each one of us in order to bridge the gulf between the promise of our vows and their fulfillment, in order to bridge the gulf between what we do inside these privileged walls and the rest of the world in which we live and upon which we fully rely for our true, dependently co-arisen existence. She has a beautiful way with words. So I'll be frank and say that here at Deficit Gazan as a community and as an institution, there's still significant work that we need to do to address the ways that white supremacy and privilege continue to undermine our stated mission to express, make it accessible, and embody the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha. The question at the forefront of my mind at the moment in which I hope you will join me in responding to, is how can we become a community that fosters awakening to these systems of harm in our bodies and between us? I want to understand how we can go beyond a fragile, superficial harmony in our community, one in which there is only partial freedom, to be a better community, to be a truly anti-racist, be a sangha in which freedom for all is what we fundamentally strive for. But to do so requires that we dismantle or tear apart what we have to tear apart, to undo certain forms that are harmful, and also to take responsibility for what we have to take responsibility for. We also have to engage in a loving accountability, one that listens, is humble, is disciplined, and which apologizes. And it's a a loving accountability that tries again and again, that persists like Mahapajapati did, even though we don't know what we are doing at times. Let us be rooted in our bodhisattva vow and vision. Let us act with love. A love which is the knowing of our shared being. And let us be powerful in our work for collective liberation. Okay, I'll bring this to a close by saying that if it's true, as Thich Han says, but the next Buddha is Sangha. And our work is to learn how to be a community together. To do this, we must understand how racism, along with other dimensions of oppression, divides us so that we can dismantle the system piece by piece. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, in the final Sunday sermon he gave just three days before he was assassinated, we must all learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will all perish together as fools. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one directly affects all, Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be and who you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information please visit sfcc.org and click giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.